Mind 10 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Welcome, everyone. We're on episode three of our 12-part series, Deciphering Revelation. In the last episode, we looked at the letters John wrote to the seven churches. In this episode and in the subsequent episodes, we're going to tackle one to two chapters per episode. As we said before, we don't have enough time to really delve into every verse and every chapter, but we can give an overview, unlock some of the apocalyptic language, and debunk some false teaching that's hanging around out there. And hopefully, armed with all that, it'll encourage many of you to dive in deep on your own. In fact, at the end of this series, we're going to give you some excellent resources to do just that. And there are some excellent ones out there. Oh, there are, yeah. There's also some lousy ones. There's also some lousy ones. (laughs) So, Chris, let's get started. Chapters 4 through 19 in the book of Revelation deal with God's judgment. But before God has John record what God's judgment on the world is going to look like, he gets a vision in chapters 4 and 5. Jesus draws back the curtain and gives John a glimpse into heaven. In both of these chapters, we're shown God's throne room in heaven. But more than that, they show us that what goes on in that heavenly throne room has never and will never change. And that's an important thing to know. We know that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and that he never changes. These chapters show us that the same is true of what goes on in heaven. This should be a huge comfort to us, especially in a time like now when things in the world seem chaotic. Knowing that we serve an orderly God who has never and will never change, and who's intentional about everything, working out all things, even the most evil things out for our good, for his plans and purpose, and for his glory should give us encouragement, hope, and confidence, and encouragement as we face whatever is out there for us. Amen to that. We can live our day-to-day life on earth no matter what it looks like or how painful it is. We can endure it because we know that there's something magnificent going on in heaven right now and will still be going on when we get there. We get to join the parties. We do get to join the party. (laughs) All right, Chris, let's dive into the text. Revelation chapter 4 verses 1 to 6a say, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings, peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. Chris, this is a pretty descriptive passage, but notice it doesn't describe the appearance of God. No, it doesn't. It says things like in chapter 4, verse 3, He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. John uses these precious stones to give us an idea of the magnificence and the majesty of God without actually giving us a physical description of him. And why is that? Because God said in Exodus 20, verse 4, and Deuteronomy 5, verse 8, in the Ten Commandments, 
You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. In the teaching video that we did that accompanies our book, No Half Truths Allowed, Understanding the Complete Gospel Message, video number five, we go into this in great detail. But just to put it simply, there's no physical description of God because God said there was to be no physical description of him. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's because I said so. <laughs> so can you imagine if John had physically described God? I mean, as you said, we've already, you know, been overwhelmed with statues and paintings and drawings depicting what artists think that Jesus looks like. And we showed a few of these paintings in that extra teaching video that you mentioned. Just imagine what it would be like if John had given an actual description of him or God the Father. Instead, John describes for us the throne room of God, which is unlike anything any of us has ever seen on earth. And of course, that's because God is unlike anything we've ever seen on earth. Absolutely. So there's a rainbow around the throne. Going back to the Old Testament, as the book of Revelation constantly does, the rainbow is the symbol of the covenant God made with Noah called the Noahic Covenant which in a few lines said basically that God pledged never to destroy the earth in a flood again, thereby preserving the stability of nature. And this was important because this stability was necessary if Jesus was going to enter history to save his people. And since all living things would never again be destroyed by a flood, the whole earth was the beneficiary of this covenant. The Noahic covenant symbolized by the rainbow that's around the throne of God demonstrates God's love for all of his creation and it shows us that one day God is going to set the earth back to right the way it was always meant to be before the fall. We mentioned that the colors are used as symbols in this book too. It says that there is the appearance of emeralds all around the throne. Emeralds are green. Green is used as a symbol of nature and again it points to God's renewing the earth. We don't have too much time to go much deeper into the first six verses. But one thing we want to note is about these 24 elders around the throne. These 24 elders represent all the people of God. Remember, 12 is a number of completeness. 12 is often used to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, meaning those God chose to save from the nation of Israel. But 12 is also used to represent the apostles who preached the gospel to the Gentiles. So 24 is all of the people God has chosen to save. They're seated next to God in robes of white with gold crowns on their heads. They're enjoying fellowship with God. The white robes show the righteousness and holiness that was imputed to them by Christ. And we see a reference to the gold crowns again back in Isaiah. Isaiah 28, 5 says, In that day the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. The crowns represent the people of God sharing in the glory of God. Remember this because we're going to see what they do with these gold crowns in a minute. But first, let's read verses 6b to 8. It says, And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. You know, this is the apocalyptic language that we're talking about that tends to trip people up. Yes. So here we see various creatures described. 
creatures that are hard for us to envision. Mm-hmm. Eyes all over, front and back, six and wings. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. You know, but we don't have to get frightened or wigged out about these creatures. These are basically the worship leaders in heaven. I'm sure we've all experienced some pretty funky worship leaders. <laughs> we have. Chris, weren't you a worship leader? I was leader? for a short time. <laughs> was I funky? Uh, maybe not this funky. I they, hope not. <laughs> they lead everyone in heaven in the worship of God by saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And Chris, if you know your Old Testament, like I know you do, you know that this is not the first time we see creatures like this, nor even words of worship like this. No, it's not. Ezekiel chapter 1 and Isaiah 6-2 describe having a vision of creatures that are similar to these, when Ezekiel and Isaiah also get a glimpse into heaven. Isaiah tells us that they are seraphim, which means angels, and the words of worship used should make us think of the very next verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 6-3, which says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So this vision given to John was not something new. It had been given to Ezekiel and Isaiah. Remember, the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, not a bunch of crazy new teaching. And how often do we say that? Constantly. And I just want to make a side note so there's no confusion, because if you're reading through the book of Daniel and you get to Daniel 7, you'll see there's creatures there. Uh, The creatures are very different. And when you put those verses in the context, you'll see that those creatures are actually earthly kingdoms, not heavenly worshipers. Okay. So let's finish up chapter 4. Verses 9 to 11 say, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So the first thing is we see the people of God, the 24 elders, casting their crowns back to God. They're giving the glory back to God. We said earlier that God is giving us this glimpse into heaven to encourage us and give us hope. That would have been very, very needed in John's time. The Roman emperors thought of themselves as gods and they demanded to be worshipped. That's why they hated Christians and Christianity. They wanted everyone to bow down to them and look to them for their authority. And when they didn't, they were tortured and killed. It would have been very, very tempting for early Christians to give in and bow the knee to Caesar. At the very least, they may have watered down the gospel so that it wasn't too offensive. That's very true. And we may see that happening here. And we may. But this glimpse that they are given showed them and us that there's something a lot bigger than us going on. Bigger than us, bigger than any governing power that's at work. God the Almighty is sovereign and he is on the throne. And someday we're going to be at that throne worshiping him face to face. Knowing that should strengthen and empower us to stand against anyone or anything that opposes the thing of God. I'm going to quote Dr. Vody Bakum again because we love him. But he gives us another jewel. He says, when the world is going to hell, change your perspective. (gasps) I love to listen to him. Regardless of what happens in November or on any other day, God's people will prevail. And again, this isn't a new teaching. Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar realized the very same thing. 
As punishment, God had given him the mind of an animal for seven years. And at the end of those seven years, he says in Daniel 4.34, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Again, amen. Okay, Chris, let's move on to chapter five. Revelation 5 verses 1 to 5 says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. Chris, here we go with more apocalyptic language. There's numbers, there's symbolism. So why don't you unpack it for us? Okay. Let's start with the very first verse that said, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This verse is a great example of why taking the approach that everything in the book of Revelation is literal causes problems. God the Father is seated on the throne. How do we know that? Because as we're going to see in a moment, Jesus is standing amongst the elders. God the Father is in essence a spirit. He does not have a physical body. Jesus does, but he does not. So John, using quote-unquote right hand, is just giving God human qualities to make him more understandable to us. This is called anthropomorphism. We see it in several places in scripture, like in Psalm 89.10, which says, You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Anthropomorphism is a literary tool used to help us better understand God and his actions. That's a good point. So moving on, we kind of get a courtroom feel from the next verses. You know, the angels proclaiming loudly, who is worthy to open the scroll? The Bible uses this courtroom example several places. Hmm. It's used in the prophetic books to convict the Israelites of their guilt before God. It's used in Daniel 7, which is a vision of this very scene. The scroll too is mentioned in the Old Testament books, including Daniel, Ezekiel, and Isaiah. Chris, Revelation goes back to the Old Testament. It does. Do we need to say that again? <laughs> so does this scroll literally have seven seals? Maybe, maybe not. The point is that it's completely sealed. So why does John weep when there's no one to open it? He weeps because he knows it contains God's judgment on his enemies, redemption for God's people, and the last will and testament of the earth. If no one can open it, then these things won't be brought to their full conclusion as God intends. There will be no end to the persecution for the church, no justice for God's elect, and no redemption of God's people. But then the elder tells him, stop crying. There is one who's worthy to open the scroll, the line of Judah and the root of David. Of course, this is Jesus. But why is Jesus described this way here? Well, let's take a look at it. Guess what, Chris? We're going back to the Old Testament. <laughs> we are? The Lion of Judah is from Genesis 49, 9 and 10, which says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, 
until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And the root of David is from Isaiah 11, 1-5, which say, There shall come from a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Okay, like we said, we weren't kidding that there's a lot of Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Right. So let's move on to Revelation 5, verses 6 to 10, which say, And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. There's a lot to unpack here. And this is definite symbolism that John's using. Let's start with the lamb who's standing there as though he'd been slain. This is obviously Jesus. This is how we know it wasn't Jesus sitting on the throne, handing the scroll with his right hand. But these verses say a lot about Jesus. First, he is the lamb who looks as though he's been slain. Jesus fully man, was slain, but he didn't stay that way. As we know, when he appeared to the apostles after his resurrection, he still had the scars from his wounds, but they weren't the deadly wounds that many thought they would be. That's right. Chris, there's a Puritan theologian named Joel Beakey, and he gives a great commentary as to why only Jesus was worthy to open the scroll. He says, and I quote, A human person had to open the book because the promise contained in it was made to humanity. But no person could open it because all have sinned and stand under the judgment contained in the book. But Christ was found worthy because he suffered the final judgment as an innocent on behalf of his people whom he represented and consequently redeemed. He's able to open the scroll and our inheritance because he's the God-man who was slain. So what's with the seven horns, seven eyes, and seven spirits? (laughs) No. Jesus does not physically have seven horns and eyes. Let's start with the horns. Horns are used many places in scripture to represent authority. Deuteronomy 33:17, for example, says, Our firstborn bull, he has majesty, and his horns are the horns of a wild ox. With them he shall gore the peoples, all of them, to the ends of the earth. And remember, the number seven is a number of completion. So the symbol of Jesus having seven horns means that he has complete authority. Now, be honest. When you were reading that, you were thinking, there's some people I'd like to bore. <laughs> I was thinking that. I exactly, You know me too well, but that's exactly what I was thinking. And along the same vein, when it says Jesus had seven eyes, he does not have seven eyes. It means he sees and knows all. 
In other words, he's omniscient. And the seven spirits means he is completely God. He is all-powerful or omnipotent. And if all of what we already mentioned wasn't enough to convince you that this is Jesus, the fact that everyone in heaven falls at his feet to worship him should seal it up for you. Yep. (laughs) So what about these golden bowls of incense? We're told that they're the prayers of the saints. But more specifically, they're the prayers of the martyrs and those who have been persecuted for the name of Jesus. This is a little complex to explain and we don't have the time, but we know this because the scroll contains God's judgment and God's justice, as we're going to see in chapter six. There's one prayer that demands God's judgment and God's justice, and that's vindication for those who have been persecuted and or killed for proclaiming Jesus as Lord. Yeah, and it's not that those who have given their life for the faith are better or more important than those who didn't. But remember, the entire Bible points to Jesus, and Jesus is the ultimate martyr. Yes. He, more than anyone else, deserves to see God's judgment and justice for how he was treated and killed. These verses show us that those who are enemies of God will someday be dealt with justly. And Chris, is there anything more comforting and encouraging than that? There really isn't, because we all really want justice Yes. in all situations. Yep. Sometimes I look at some of the evil and wickedness that are going on today, and it makes me physically sick. You know, it goes across my mind, why is God allowing this? Well, the answer is he's only allowing it for a time. Those who are perpetrating this evil and wickedness, they're going to be called to account. If God doesn't regenerate their heart first, of course, but they will be called to account. Yeah, they will be. And this also means that we're free to love our enemies. We don't have to avenge ourselves. We can freely show grace and compassion to everyone, no matter how wicked they are, because God's going to bring his justice to pass. We don't have to gore anybody. We don't. That doesn't mean that we don't fight against evil, like abortion. We should absolutely fight against the things that are perverting the word of God. But we can show grace to individuals. If anything, we should feel sorry for them because they don't belong to Jesus and someday they're going to suffer this wrath. Yep. You know, we can get frustrated when we see really rotten people, you know, have money, fame, power, whatever. And then on the other end, we see decent people who are struggling and they're oppressed. But Chris, we're always bashing Joel Osteen for telling Christians to live their best life now. But if you think about it, his message is perfect for unbelievers. It is perfect for unbelievers because their time on earth is their best life. That's right. Things are going to be pretty bad for them when the end comes. Yeah, I can't imagine. Me either. Okay, so just to finish up these verses. Revelation 5, 9 to 10 says, For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. These verses don't say that God will save everyone. Note that it says Jesus' blood ransomed people for God. Not everyone, just those God has chosen. What it does say is that God has chosen people from every tribe, every language, every people group, and every nation. Remember, four is the number used to represent creation and the earth. If you notice, there's four groups listed. Every tribe, every language, every people group, every nation. So this is all the people God has chosen to save. All will reign with Christ when he returns. Okay, let's finish up chapter 5. Revelation 5, 11 to 14 says... 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Chris, things are about to get real in chapter 6 when we start looking at the woes. Yeah, they are. We're going to see just what God's judgment and justice looks like. So John is given chapters 4 and 5 as encouragement and hope. That God is sovereign over everything and that he is securely on the throne. And Jesus is ready to return and bring to completion the victory that he's already won over Satan, sin, and death. And he will bring to consummation the kingdom of God and his reign as the one true king. Amen to that. That's a good place to end for today. We hope you've been encouraged and blessed by today's episode. May knowing that our sovereign Lord has what may seem like an uncertain and scary future to us firmly in his grasp and firmly under his control, may that bring you peace. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on the podcast platform that you're listening on. We would greatly appreciate it. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you won't miss an episode. Yeah, you can also like and follow us on our Proverbs 910 Facebook page or on Instagram, Twitter, Parler, or on our website, Proverbs910Ministries.com. Have a blessed day, everyone. <laughs>